0: Evening, everyone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your scripture. We know that we need your help to understand it. And so we ask that as we spend time thinking about it, that you would guard us from error. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's one thing we can all agree on in these divisive times, it's that we don't have enough words in the English language. Sure, we can borrow words from other languages, but where's the fun in that? It's far more fun taking two different existing English words and combining them, smashing them together as if we were Dr. Frankenstein writing the dictionary. Here are some popular examples. Hangry, someone who is irritable and angry but only because they're hungry. Glamping. Glamorous camping. Camping with all the comforts of not camping. What about staycation? Taking vacation time to stay at home. Or mansplain? When a man explains something in a condescending way, assuming that someone has no knowledge of the content. That's probably all I should say on that one. You see, the word mansplain comes from taking the word man and explain and putting them together. Um, <laughs> but perhaps my favourite is humblebrag, a seemingly self-deprecating statement whose actual purpose is to draw attention to something of which something to uh, 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 draw attention to something of which someone is proud. Like if I told you I had a really tough time keeping track of all the job offers I had been receiving. Or if I told you that my cell phone is so old, I get embarrassed when I take it on dates with Hollywood actresses and supermodels. Or if I told you that I had to be careful not to spend too much time with my favorite sports car so that all my other sports cars don't feel unloved. Humble brags are an attempt to lift oneself up with false humility. Tonight, we're going to be looking at an example of Jesus who was lifted up through real humility. We're going to be focusing tonight mainly on verses 7 to 11 from Philippians chapter 2, but let's start reading from verse 5. So Philippians chapter 2 from verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant This passage is given to us as an example of humility for us to follow. But in doing so, we are given a rich theology of what it meant for Jesus to become man and humble himself. Typically over Easter, we focus on cross—we uh, focus on the cross and what it means for us. But tonight, just for a second, we will focus on what the cross means for Jesus. And I'd like to do this under three headings. Christ's humiliation... Christ's exaltation, and then our response, or in fact, the response of the universe. So firstly, I would like us to focus on the humiliation of Christ. Let's read again from verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient To the point of death, even death on a cross. In order to understand Christ's humiliation, his humbling, we first need to appreciate where he started from. In order to understand how far he fell, we need to understand how high he started. Jesus was in the form of God. Now we're going to have to take a quick detour, and believe me, it will be the quickest of quickest detours into the world of Bible translation because I know nothing about Biblical Greek, and I'm only relying on the wisdom of others here, but I hope you see that it is worth it. Our passage uses the word form three times. Form of God, form of a servant, and human form. The first two times, form of God and form of a servant, come from the Greek word morphe, which is the very essence of something The essential nature of being. The third time it's used, the um, phrase being found in human form, is the Greek word schema, which more um, refers to the way something appears or the way something looks. To understand what it means for Jesus to be found, to to be in the form of God, morphe, look at the way the NIV translates this word. Verse 6 in that version reads, Jesus being in very nature God. Jesus is God in the deepest, most essential part of his being. He is, in his substance, God. He could not be more God if he tried. And just to drive this point home even further, Paul goes on to say that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, I think it makes sense to understand this phrase Um, as Jesus already had equality with God, and yet he did not hold onto it so tightly so as being unwilling to give it up. If we consider what Paul says next, this makes more sense than saying that equality with God was something that Jesus didn't have and also gave up pursuing it. The Bible clearly talks of Jesus being equal with God. We don't have time to go through all the texts that prove this for us, but just briefly... Colossians 1 verse 15, if you're taking notes, Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God. And then Jesus' own claim about himself in John chapter 8, 58, um, before Abraham was, I am. And we know that he was claiming equality with God when he said this, because the crowds, when they heard this, picked up stones and tried to stone him, and Jesus' response was not to correct them, um, their response, to, or their response to what Jesus claimed was obviously wrong, but it was not their understanding of what he claimed. They understood that he was claiming to be God. It's worth spending time on this, because if we get this point wrong, there is no recovery from it. If we get this wrong, that if we don't understand that Jesus is God, fully God in every aspect, down to the very essence of his being, then there is no road to recovery. Important to establish um, uh, this is is important to establish in order that we can see the extent of Jesus' humiliation, which is now the point that our passage goes on to describe. So, looking at verse 7, it says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, clearly referring to Jesus' incarnation. Again, we spoke earlier about this word morphe. the one used in the phrase form of God, and that's the same word that's used here uh, in form of a servant. Hopefully, our little detour into Greek will pay off. I raise this point um, to drive home something that I hope is clear to many of us, but still very important for us to remember. Jesus was fully God and became fully human. Before the incarnation, he was fully God. In his essence, in his core being, he was God. After the Incarnation, Jesus was also fully man. In the same way that He is in His essence God, He is now also fully man. He was not God dressed up like a man. He was not God with a human body. He took on the essence of man in the same way that He had the essence of God. He now had a dual nature. He now was or is a God-man. I'm not going to pretend to be able to understand or explain all the complexities of having a dual nature. I'm not going to pretend to be able to answer all the questions that come from this idea of one being having both God and man natures. These are questions that my Sunday school kids ask, and I don't have an answer for them. These are questions that we'll probably ask for the rest of our lives, and questions that will probably only be answered in heaven. Now, we have to tread lightly as we move on in our passage and we look at the word, what it means for Jesus to have emptied himself. Let's start with what it can't mean. It can't mean that Jesus became any less God. And given what we understand from the word morphe, which we looked at earlier, uh, and how that refers to something's essence, it is not possible for that essence to change. Jesus did not empty himself of his deity. This is really important. He did not empty himself of his godness. Otherwise, Jesus would no longer be God. If he lost some of his godly attributes, he would no longer be God. Jesus emptying himself of his godness is like us emptying ourselves of humanity. There would be nothing left if we got rid of our humanity, we would cease to exist. So Jesus didn't empty himself of his deity, not in any part. But it must mean something. So what does it mean? Let's look at John 17, verse 5. I'll read it for us. This is Jesus praying, and he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So this is Jesus praying to the Father uh, in what's called the high priestly prayer just before he goes to the cross. And here he is praying for a restoration of glory that he previously had. And, of course, this implies that there is a sense in which while Jesus was on earth, his glory was veiled. It was not obvious. Now, to be clear, Jesus never gave up his right to that glory. He always had a right to this glory, even when he was on earth as a man. But he did not claim this right, for his glory to be displayed while he was on earth. Before he came down to earth, Jesus would have been surrounded in heaven with the deafening praise and service of thousands upon thousands of angels. He would have had the same right to that glory on earth. He never lost this right, but he chose not to claim it. In the same way, he had the right to use all of his godly attributes. Yet we know that he emptied himself of the use of, Of these rights. So, for example, he had the right to omniscience, to know everything, and yet Jesus speaks of things that he doesn't know. An obvious example is speaking of the timing of the second coming. But there is another emptying that takes place when Jesus takes on humanity. Let's look back at our verse. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Notice, Jesus doesn't just set aside his full claim to glory and attributes. He doesn't just take on humanity. He takes on the form of a servant. If you or I had devised this plan of God becoming man, we would have fallen over ourselves inventing new titles and positions of authority and honor for this God-man president of the world, high chancellor of the solar system. No, when Jesus came down, he took the form of a servant. He was a man, not even a rich man or a powerful man. So Paul has taken us on this progression, starting with establishing Jesus as being equal with God, then he takes on humanity, and then in taking on that humanity, he takes on a lowly position, not a rich, powerful one. And then in verse 8, he humbles himself even further. Jesus humbles himself even further, our passage says, by becoming obedient to the point of death, yet another step in our progression. And it wasn't a peaceful, dignified, painless death. No, it was a cruel, humiliating death, the worst kind of death, an execution that was only fit the lowest of society, and and the worst of criminals. At every point of this progression, Jesus could have put a stop to it. He had the right and the power as the God of the universe to demand the worship that he enjoyed in heaven. He had the right to demand authority while he was on earth. He had the right to dismiss entirely the farce that it was to put the God of heaven on trial. And yet, his response to all of these things is submission. His response is obedience. This is such a foundational word, obedience, in describing really all of Jesus' life on earth. All of it is characterized by obedience. But who is Jesus obeying? Certainly not us. Jesus is not obeying his creation. No, Jesus is obeying the Father. God the Son obeying God the Father. Um, let's look quickly at, a, at another another verse, Romans five verse nineteen. Uh, For as by the one man's disobedience, referring to Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The one man's obedience, referring to Jesus' obedience to the Father, and what this verse points to is a topic that we're really not going to have much time to, to think about at all tonight. Is this covenant, this promise, formed out of love between the members of the Trinity, and part of this is Jesus' obedience of uh, ob- obedience to the Father. He would live a perfect life of obedience while he was on Earth, and then that obedience ultimately would take him to the cross. I say this to to help us fight against this idea that sometimes creeps into our thinking, which is that somehow the cross is an example of the Son and the Father being in opposition with one another. They were not. The Son was obeying the Father. So that is a brief glimpse, a whirlwind of the extent of the work that Jesus did. This is what we celebrated last week over Easter, Jesus who is equal with God in every way humbles himself. He does this by taking on the form of a man, not just a man but a lowly man, a servant. He goes further and suffers death but not just any death, the worst kind of death on a cross and he does all of this. All of his humility comes from his obedience to the Father. So with that in mind, with this progression of deepening humiliation that Paul has taken us on, let's now turn to our second point in which Christ is exalted. Let's look at verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. The first thing to see here is found in the very first word. Therefore, Christ's humiliation and Christ's exaltation are not simply events that follow one from the other. These are not distinct steps in the choreography of redemptive history. First the one, then the other. No. No. Christ's exaltation is because of Christ's humiliation. This is the Father's response to Christ's humiliation. These two are linked. So often when we think of Jesus' death, we think only of what it accomplished for us. And indeed we should, as often as we can, think of this. But this passage teaches us that this death accomplished something for Jesus too something that has always been part of God's redemptive plan. So verse 9 says that God has highly exalted Jesus and also given to Jesus the name that is above every name. And then verse 11 tells us that that name is Lord. Again, we need to be careful about what we mean here when we say that God exalts Christ because Jesus as God couldn't have been exalted any further. He is God. He has all power and majesty and glory and wisdom and authority. How can he be raised any further? What does it mean now that God the Father has exalted him? It is impossible for God to be exalted any higher. But God the Father exalts this God-man, Jesus, who is now fully God and fully man. And this starts with the Father raising Jesus from the dead. Ex 2:24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Galatians 1:1. Paul, an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So we can say that the exaltation of Christ starts with his resurrection from the dead. God the Father raises Jesus from the dead. And what's more, after he achieved his atoning work on the cross. Jesus, after he is raised from the dead, Jesus then assumes his place at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, second half of the verse, says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Jesus was raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And now this verse tells us more about this exaltation which is, Jesus is now our intercessor. Jesus is now interceding for us. Um, reading from Hebrews uh, chapter seven, verse 25, if you have a Bible open, you might find it helpful to turn to it. reading from Hebrews 7:25. Consequently, he is able to save, uh, able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So Jesus' sacrifice is what qualifies him to be the perfect intercessor for us. Hebrews 4.15, the writer of Hebrews speaks of Jesus, calling him a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And this is critical in our understanding of Jesus' post-crucifixion glory. The exaltation he receives after he went to the cross and that is because only the god man jesus could have been tempted and yet never given to sin only a god man a fully god and fully human jesus could be the intercessor in this way this is not an aspect of jesus glory that he had before he came down to earth in this way in this way in that sense this is a new exaltation. Jesus now in heaven is being praised for his work on the cross. Imagine this for a moment. Jesus in heaven, surrounded by angels and the souls of the saints who are praising him so loudly, it would make Ellis Park during the 1995 Rugby World Cup final seem like the reading room in a British library. Jesus' glory shining so brightly, it would make staring into the sun seem like midnight in the Karoo. During load shedding, <laughs> with your eyes closed. We see a picture of heaven in Revelation 5. Listen to these verses from verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And then verse 9, referring to the four creatures and 24 elders, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus is being worshipped because he is the Lamb that was slain. This is the reason for his exaltation. Lastly then, let's look at the response to all of this. So reading from verse 9 of Philippians 4 again. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We just got a glimpse of this from our passage in Revelation, didn't we? This gives us the purpose of everything, indeed the more ultimate purpose of of the whole chain of events that has been set up here. We start with the humiliation of Christ, the purpose of which is that he might be highly exalted by God. And now the purpose of that is the total, complete, and absolute worship of Jesus by all creation. There is a sense in which this verse is already true, now. Jesus is Lord of all things now. He was before he came down to earth. But there is also a sense in which this verse will only be true in the future. This verse looks forward to a day where this truth will be acknowledged by all. There will be no one who does not proclaim the authority and supremacy of Jesus. Every knee will bow. There will be no one who will stand in opposition to Jesus in any small, even fleeting way in the way they do now. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be no one that doesn't acknowledge Jesus' uh, Jesus' right and position as Lord over the universe. And briefly, there are three responses that I think we need to think about as we contemplate this future time when no one will stand in opposition to Jesus. Firstly, I'm going to return to a point, a very brief point that I touched on at the beginning of the sermon, and that is the broader context of this passage. We have taken from this passage a very rich theology of Christ, his suffering, and his resulting exaltation. But this passage is given to us as an example of humility. Just before Paul describes uh, the verse uh, gives the description in the verses that we've we've studied tonight, He gives an instruction in verse 5 saying, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I don't think Paul just got carried away when he was writing this, when he moved on from Christ's suffering and humiliation to then talk about his exaltation. I think he was encouraging us in our own humiliation. You see, we have seen clearly the connection that Paul draws for Christ Christ's humiliation is the reason for his exaltation. And I think Paul is drawing out the same principle for us. Matthew 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. James 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Secondly, I'm not going to assume tonight um, that everyone here uh, acknowledges Christ as their Lord. That would be rather naive, wishful thinking on my part. So, please take this as a warning if you are not a Christian here tonight. If you do not view Christ as your Lord. You may not view Christ as your Lord now, but the Bible is clear that one day you will. You will submit to Him. And this will not be a joyful, worshipful, satisfying experience of Christ's Lordship, which is what you have the chance to do right now in this life. And lastly, this should also be an encouragement to Christians who are tired and weary and heartbroken by all the ways in which people stand in opposition to Christ now and yet are not punished. They refuse to bow their knees to Jesus. They refuse to acknowledge Him as Lord. They shake their fists. They assert their own lordship over their lives. And it appears, for now anyway, as if they are getting away with it. We know that the only reason this is tolerated by God is that there is coming a day where it will no longer be tolerated by God. One day, every knee will bow in submission. There will be no rival to Jesus. There will be no two sides, a light side and a dark side, competing with one another. There will only be one authority, Christ. He is already Lord of all. One day, everyone will acknowledge that he is Lord of all. Shall we pray? Thank you, Father, for this reminder that you have given us of the depth of your humility and the heights of your exaltation. Thank you that the full, final declaration of your glory is not in doubt. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.